Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now beginning our fourth season, and we remain just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview an expert today on waste and waste management. And today we're going to be looking at and focusing on electronic waste, that is e-waste, and hazardous waste, and the environmental and health consequences. Now, simply defined, hazardous waste is a waste that with properties that make it dangerous or capable of having a harmful effect on human health or the environment. Hazardous waste is generated from many, many sources, ranging all the way from industrial manufacturing processes to batteries, and it may come in many forms, including liquids, solids, gases, and sludges. Now, while e-waste or electronic waste is not technically defined by the Environmental Protection Agency as a hazardous waste, and that's because it can be reused and recycled, it is nonetheless hazardous. E-waste or electronic waste is one of the fastest growing waste streams on the planet. Already, we produce something like 50 million tons of it each year, and that number is only set to increase as electronics become more accessible worldwide and become more and more part of the fabric of our lives. So what is e-waste or electronic waste? Well, electronic waste encompasses electrical and electronic equipment that's outdated, unwanted, or, or broken. And that means everything from smartphones or unsmartphones to end-of-life refrigerators and basically anything that runs on electricity that you've decided to get rid of is e-waste or electronic waste. And globally, we only recycle about 10% of our e-waste. And that's a number that is shockingly depressing. As for the 90% that we don't recycle, well, it ends up in a lot of places. It ends up getting landfilled, incinerated, or illegally traded. Now, e-scrap and end-of-life electronics are also terms often used to describe electronic waste. But basically, it's, again, talking about electronics that are nearing the end of their useful life and are discarded, donated, or given to a recycler. Now, the United Nations defines e-waste as any discarded products with a battery or a plug and features toxic and hazardous substances such as mercury and a lot of others that we're going to talk about later. But the point is they can pose severe risk to human and environmental health. Now, according to the UN, in 2021, each person on the planet produced approximately an average of 7.6 kilograms of e-waste, meaning that a massive 57.4 million tons was generated worldwide. 
And again, only about 17.4 percent in 2021 of this electronic waste containing a mixture of harmful substances and precious metals was recorded as being properly collected, treated, and recycled. And many initiatives are underway to tackle this growing concern, but none of them can be fully effective without the active role and without correct education of we consumers. E-waste contains valuable materials as well as hazardous toxins, which make the efficient material recovery and the safe recycling of e-waste extremely important for economic value as well as environmental and human health. And the discrepancy in the amount of e-waste produced and the amount of e-waste that is properly recycled reflects an urgent need for all of us, all stakeholders, to address this issue. The United Nations Environment Program also estimated in a 2015 report that was called Waste Crimes, Waste Risk, Gaps and Challenges in the Waste Sector, they estimated that 60 to 90 percent of the world's electronic waste worth nearly $19 billion is illegally traded or dumped each year. And the average lifespan of a computer and a cell phone is now just three years. So it's no surprise that electronic products in all shapes and sizes and forms have and are constantly becoming obsolete. This has led to an overabundance of electronics throughout the world. And our user manuals for our electronic devices, such as computers, tablets, and cell phones, describe the proper disposal of these when they're at the end of their lifespan. But despite this, many of us and many people in developed countries still throw electronics into the trash. And e-waste plagues landfills as it has the potential to cause severe environmental health impacts on both humans and animals. And the long-term impact of electronic waste is immeasurable. In an attempt to prevent the threat of e-waste affecting our ecosystems, 25 of uh, the states in the U.S. have adopted regulations and initiatives noted or called electronic laws. And they've done this to help retailers, to help original equipment manufacturers, and the public address this ongoing danger associated with all of this electronic waste. Now, with consumers and businesses discarding millions of electronics per year, the disposal of e-waste continues to be an ever-growing concern despite some of the things we're trying to do. And this is especially concerning considering the fact that e-waste, as we mentioned earlier, is not classified as hazardous waste. But again, it is still very toxic to the health of humans as well as biological health. Now, when analyzing these facts about e-waste and how it typically is disposed of, uh, the effects it has on air, soil, and water is without question dangerous to humans, and it is a great emerging health risk for the entire world. And all of these pollutants that it causes eventually find their way to plants, to animals, and again, humans. E-waste affects air, water, and soil in different ways. Contaminated soil and water can kill vegetation, and consequently, the animals that rely on those plants for food. Airborne pollutants can settle and accumulate on leaves, and then many animals, including 
us human animals, inhale these pollutants. Animals also suffer in diverse ways after ingesting contaminated water and contaminated foliage. And eventually, heavy metals and other toxins, especially in water, are elevated throughout the entire food chain to hazardous concentrations at the high feeders. In this case, humans and other top predators often suffer the effects of lead and mercury poisoning and many other types of poison issues. Altering the chemical composition of the air, land, and water has irreversible effects on our ecosystem. Now, the United States transports e-waste abroad to countries like Taiwan, China, Pakistan, Thailand, Canada, and Kenya to be disposed of so that the burning of toxic compounds doesn't affect the country's domestic population. And I believe recently China has begun to refuse to accept e-waste, but we'll talk about that later with our special guest. Now, the World Health Organization report on e-waste and child health, which was released in June of last year, calls for urgent, effective, and binding action to protect the millions of children, adolescents, and expectant mothers worldwide whose health is jeopardized by the informal processing of discarded electrical or electronic devices. As many as 12.9 million women are working in this informal waste sector, which potentially exposes them to toxic e-waste and puts them and their unborn children at risk. Now, while we don't participate a lot in the U.S. in that informal processing system, what it does is gives us a snapshot into the, what can happen. It informs what we're all can be and to some degree are exposed to. Now, meanwhile, more than 18 million children and adolescents, some as young as five years of age, are actively engaged in this informal sector. And children are often engaged by their parents or their caregivers in e-waste uh, recycling because their small hands are better able to do it than those adults. Other children live, go to school, and play near e-waste recycling centers where they come in contact with high levels of toxic chemicals. Children Exposed to e-waste are particularly vulnerable to the toxic chemicals they contain due to the child's smaller size and their less developed organs. Now, appropriate collection and recycling of e-waste is key to protect the environment and reduce climate emissions. In 2019, again, it was found that about 17% of the e-waste that was collected and appropriately recycled prevented as much as 15 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalents from being released into our environment and exacerbating global warming. Now, this is a lot, but here today to help us explore and understand this is an expert, and that is Neil Peters Michaud. And Neil is CEO and co-founder of Cascade Asset Management. And that is an IT asset disposition firm. The company has processed over 110 million tons of electronics for reuse or recycling at its facilities in Wisconsin, in Indiana, and in Florida. Neil is also an active member of the leadership team for the Coalition for American Electronics Recycling, and he participated in the development of the eStewards standard, 
and he has assisted the Environmental Protection Agency and the World Bank on computer recycling uh, projects in Ethiopia and other places. And Neil was named in the Electronics Reuse Hall of Fame in 2019. Welcome, Neil. And did I get all of that right? Yes, uh, uh, except for the tons that we processed, it was actually 110 million pounds. But yes, thank you. Thank you. And we will talk more with Neil right after the break. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available online free for download at nadallas.com check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more, and we are told the best Christmas trees in Texas. Check them out at nhg.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach looking at the whole body specializing in periodontics dr lynn is board certified by the international academy of oral medicine and toxicology check them out at lynndentalcare.com thank you sponsors Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, to our show on waste and waste management, focusing in today on electronic waste or e-waste and hazardous waste, its environmental and health consequences. And today we have with us Neil Peters Michaud, and Neil is CEO and co-founder of Cascade Asset Management, and he is a real-life expert on electronic or e-waste. So again, thank you again, Neil. So Neil, I want to start out with you talking to us or telling us what are the different types or components of e-waste and which are more dangerous and why? Yeah, thanks, Bernice. Um, You know, as you mentioned earlier, it's uh, anything you can really plug in or has a battery. So it's going to be your typical computer equipment, consumer electronics, televisions. uh, So what's known as, you know, appliances or white goods from refrigerators and such. Um, what we typically focus on are going to be the computers and electronics that people are using in their businesses and schools and at their homes. And it can also be large data center equipment down to um, your personal smartphone. So what is dangerous about those things? We, we use all of those things, even refrigerators. You know, we're just coming in contact with them all day, every day. And I understand that as long as we're using them or when they're in good shape, they're, they're okay. So what components of those become dangerous, and, and, and why are they dangerous when they're discarded, whereas they're not dangerous when we're using them every day? Yeah, there's certain chemicals and materials and, and metals that are used in devices to enable them to function properly. So in the old televisions, the cathode ray tubes had leaded glass or lead embedded in the glass chemistry to protect the viewer of the television from the radiation created by the electron gun. It's put in there for a good safety reason while it's in use. Um, the problem is when you're taking that device apart and then maybe you're crushing the glass, um, you're creating a fine powder, uh, you could have an issue with the people who are handling it, inhaling the device, or typically when a TV is put into a landfill, it's going to be run over by a big front-end loader, and it could mix in with the material and then leach into the groundwater. 
So the problem is once you start to disengage and, and remove the devices from their use and separate out and, uh, the different fractions, uh, you could create a hazard, or especially if you're burning, shredding, granulating the materials, that's when you have an exposure risk. Okay. It, it gets us like asbestos. It's once you begin to, you know, they call asbestos friable once it gets into the environment. So once that piece of equipment in any kind of way becomes, I guess, disengaged from its original form or its usable form is when you get into trouble. Yeah, you can definitely create some hazards. And there's different uh, ways that you're exposed to the hazards, whether you're manually disassembling or shredding or burning. Uh, Pyrolysis is a big uh, process for just uh, being able to melt materials and, and liberate the different materials from one another in order to recycle them properly. In informal settings where you might be doing that over an open flame, you don't have a way to control the gases, control any of the the off-gassing of materials that might be um, managed or or created from that process. If you have a licensed smelter operation, it has a better chance of being able to limit the hazardous chemicals that might be created uh, from the burning of those devices. Um, And so there's different ways to, to manage the equipment and manage the chemicals so that they can be properly either contained or recovered and recycled. So what are the top uh, pollutants or chemicals or bad elements uh, within the uh, e-waste stream? Yeah, it's changed over time as different materials and products have changed. So it used to be the lead that was in the um, glass CRTs and also the lead that was used in solder on circuit boards. Uh, manufacturers have switched to different products. You have flat panel screens, uh, which had a lot of um, cold cathode fluorescent lamps, CCFL lamps, which contain mercury. So mercury was uh, just like in an an overhead fluorescent lamp or a compact fluorescent lamp you'd see that has mercury in them. Uh, Televisions and uh, monitors and also laptops might have a CCFL lamp that has mercury. So we've kind of replaced the lead with mercury in a lot of the displays. LED displays don't have the mercury issue, but they have arsenic in them. So they're still trying to figure out what the potential hazard is when those get recycled and, and processed. Batteries is the other large challenge with that, that we're seeing, both the lithium that's in batteries and the nickel-cadmium batteries. Cadmium is very toxic and hazardous. Uh, and uh, lead-acid batteries that are used in um, battery backup systems and a lot of other devices. Um, The lead can be, again, very hazardous, um, but it's also very recyclable. Okay, thank you for that. But I want to sit right there for a moment because most of us are familiar with almost all of those top four that you named, and we're all familiar that they are hazardous. You know, lead has been around for a long time as a hazardous uh, material. And now if you rent uh, a place to live or if you buy, you've got to sign some documents about lead. So we're all familiar with uh, the detrimental or unhealthy aspects of lead. Same thing with mercury. I know mercury is an issue with dentists, and they used to put some of the fillings had had mercury. But again, I think most of the world, uh, and certainly U.S. citizens, are familiar with the fact that mercury is a dangerous component. And arsenic, uh, we know that from way back, although most of us think that we're not coming in contact with arsenic. Uh, But I remember on one of our shows a couple years ago, we were told with absoluteness that arsenic is in most soils in in, in a lot of cases. So most of us know that arsenic is a bad thing. And then you talk about batteries. 
I think most people go for, have used, or maybe even somewhere in their homes or someplace, have uh, lithium batteries or the cadmium because those are determined to be longer lasting or better. So we are familiar with all these products. However, I don't think it hits home with our exposure through the donated, thrown away, recycled electronics that we use every day. And that's a point we want to get over is why should people care about this? Right. And I think there is a potential exposure if people mishandle the devices. I mean, you see the warning sign of don't throw a battery in the fire because it can explode, but it can also release some um, hazardous chemicals and, and, um, and expose people that way. Um, people generally aren't going to have an exposure risk while they're using these devices. But if they are you know, taking them apart or damaging them, um, whether accidentally or on purpose, there is an exposure risk. The big exposure risk is in companies like ours, where people are, are handling the equipment or in uh, the informal sector where people are uh, breaking apart to, to um, harvest out the reusable or recyclable components. There's definitely a risk to their health and um, safety while handling these devices. So, Neil, what's what you say of these various components and these various uh, dangerous substances that are, that are contained in the electronics we use every day? Which would you say is the most persistent and perhaps the most important one that we should get under control right away? Well, I think that mercury is the bigger risk that we're seeing now because of the life cycle of products that are being disposed that have uh, mercury lamps in them. Um, the challenge with them is the lamps are very fragile, and when you open up a TV or a device, it's fairly easy to break the lamps and have a mercury exposure issue. Uh, mercury is about uh, 10 times as hazardous to, into, to human health than lead, uh, and um, uh, it's very significant if it gets um, uh, exposed into the environment for uh, impacts on ecosystems. And so I know I've seen a lot of organizations which are taking apart TVs and devices, and they might be almost uh, just not focusing on, on managing and keeping the lamps intact and you're having mercury exposure issues. I think that's a real concern until we start uh, trending over to having more LED lamps that are um, illuminating our, our video display devices. But that's the biggest risk we're seeing in our business. And I think throughout the organization, throughout the industry, as people are disposing of these devices around the world. So again, just list for us the common things that we come in contact with or that we use every day that contains the mercury. TVs, flat yeah. screens? Uh, flat screen monitors, an LCD monitor that is lit up by a CCFL lamp. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll see that there'll actually be a sticker that manufacturers are putting on TVs and monitors that say, do not dispose of in the trash because of mercury or the chemical symbol of HG. So you'll see that um, on a lot of the devices, too. Is it conceivable for people to have a, an exposure during their regular use if they do something, perhaps that they shouldn't, or if they do something inadvertently? I wouldn't say so, no. It's not unless you actually take apart the device and you potentially break the lamp. The, lamp, the mercury is contained within the lamp um, and, in, and then encased within the device just similar to fluorescent lamps that people use in their homes. Okay. It's only an exposure risk if you break them. Now, is this the same mercury that we're warned against in fish as well? 
Correct, yeah. It's very similar where you could have a drop of mercury in a large lake and it could potentially contaminate and do a fish kill. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the same kind of thing. It's in a vapor form as opposed to in a liquid form, uh, but it still can, um, it's an inhalation risk if people are exposed to it. Indeed, and there's another way. It's not e-waste, but uh, my, my dentist, when the dentist remove mercury fillings, uh, I've seen a, a picture of my dentist. She wears something that looks like a hazmat suit almost. Because I think they have to drill them out, and when they drill them, I guess that creates that vapor. Yeah, we, you know, we do take apart these lamps at our facility, and just as a protection, um, if we're taking the lamps out of uh, screens, we do it over a downdraft table with a carbon filter that could potentially capture any of the mercury that's released in case we inadvertently break any of the lamps. Um, there are processors which are called retort operations, which are re- recycling these lamps and recovering the mercury vapor. They do that under a very uh, protected environment. It's a negative air chamber environment where the staff that are working in there are in full bunny suits with respirators with oxygen coming in from outside the room. It's a highly controlled environment because it is so toxic. Um, But it can be recycled, but it has to be done under certain controlled circumstances. Indeed, and we're going to go to break now, Neil. But my last word on that is I have to wonder why we are still allowed to use mercury. We'll be right back on the other side with Neil Peters Michaud, who is CEO and co-founder of Cascade Asset Management. Thank you, Neil. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, to today's show on waste and waste management, focusing in on electronic waste or e-waste and hazardous waste, the environmental and health consequences. And we are back with uh, Neil Peters Michaud of Cascade Asset Management, and he is really making us smarter. And we've just had a, a pretty in-depth conversation about uh, mercury that I didn't intend to, to go on about, but it, it's something that everybody knows about. And, and our, our purpose here is to, to really show people the connection between these environmental issues in our health. So thank you, Neil. Now, Neil, in your firm, you have processed over 110 million pounds of e-waste. Now, what does it mean when you say process these materials? And what exactly do you all do with and to them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And when we bring the items in, we are actually first looking to process them for reuse. Uh, reuse is a better outcome for, um, from an environmental perspective and financially, too. Uh, we can make more money for us and the customers we source the equipment from if we can reuse and repair the devices. So the, on, on average, about 30% of everything that we bring in by weight can be reused, um, and uh, that's because it still has some good life in it. Uh, we can do some repair. And for reuse, it often means you take a laptop computer, wipe all the data off of it, which is a very critical part of our industry of data sanitization. And then we can load a new operating system on the device, potentially put a new battery in the laptop, maybe a new um, storage device, you know, upgrade from a hard drive to an SSD drive. Um, very good quality equipment we can resell and have used out in the environment uh, uh, for many more years. In fact, I'm communicating to you on a refurbished computer that we ran through our system. Um, it's, uh, we believe in what we preach and practice what we preach and refurbish and reuse computers ourselves. Um, the rest of the equipment, we then try and harvest as much value out of the materials as possible and do a manual demanufacturing process. And we separate the devices into about 55 different commodity streams 
whether it's ferrous metals like steel um, or non-ferrous metals like aluminum and copper, and then plastic, glass, other materials that then can go into a shredder to be separated, liberated, and then go to final recovery. So our goal in manual disassembly is to get shredder-ready material so that they can maximize the amount of recoverable materials that are harvested from our products. So when we send out our materials to uh, smelters, shredders, plastic uh, re uh, regrind operators, mercury retort operations, they're able to recover about 80% of that and turn it into a new raw material. The other might be um, items that can't be reused because they have hazardous components that need to be um, treated and managed. A big issue is, um, well, mercury uh, we have, but also uh, plastics is a real big problem. There's a lot of brominated flame retardants that have been put into plastics uh, to try and prevent fires from uh, taking place when you're using our electronics. But those BFRs are not recyclable. They're not, they can't be reintroduced into new products because there's limits on from manufacturers to use brominated flame retardants in their plastics for new products. Indeed. It, it seems to me from what you said that one of the most critical part is, I think you use the word demanufacturing, or I would say taking apart the things, the, the, the various electronics, taking them apart and separating and sorting them. Into yeah, the... and you can't actually take a whole computer or TV and throw it in a shredder, and then it magically separates into different recoverable parts. The challenge with the computer is it could contain up to 100 different types of materials, um, and so you need to be able to liberate them. I like to use the analogy of recycling an aluminum can is very different than recycling a computer. An aluminum can, you have one material, one metal, you melt it down, it's infinitely recyclable. A computer, the challenge with it is you have to separate out the hazardous materials and also the materials that could, could explode in the shredder. So lithium-ion batteries have a, um, thermal runway events if, if the cells are compromised. And so you could ex there have been fires that have taken place in shredders if the batteries aren't removed from a device before you start shredding them. So everybody has to do some kind of what is called pre-processing or separating out certain unsafe or hazardous materials before they can be put in a shredder to then use some automated processes to liberate out the different types of metals and materials from one another. And so that's why we do a manual disassembly to be able to sort out these different components so that they can go to the shredders that can optimally recover the most materials out of those fractions that we've demanufactured. Now, through the course of the show, I have and you have mentioned that informal economy. What is that and where does it fit into this process? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of value that can come out of um, handling old electronics, whether it be for reuse or recycling. So there's valuable materials in electronics like copper and, and even some precious metals that are in circuit boards. So there's gold, platinum, palladium, and silver. But there's also hazardous materials that need to be properly um, recovered and, and have to be recycled at an expense. So it costs us money to do it properly. In informal sectors, they may just target the um, value-added materials, so either the reusable products or just pull the copper off the back of an old CRT monitor and then throw away the leaded glass from the CRT monitor because it's, it doesn't contain any inherent value that can be sold. In fact, it should be treated as a hazardous waste and, and at a cost to be recycled properly. So the problem with some informal sectors is that they might just focus on the good valuable materials and then the hazardous components 
are not necessarily properly managed and they could be dumped, landfilled, burned, and create an exposure risk. And that's definitely what's happened. Now, this informal economy, I'm I'm assuming, but you tell me, is primarily in the underdeveloped countries, or do we do a lot of that here in the U.S.? Well, informal economy sectors may mean that they aren't necessarily registered as a business entity somewhere. Oh. So it could be an individual who's, um, you know, picking and, and uh, buying equipment from a flea market or uh, um, off the dock and then trying to recover and repair and resell what they can and and then get rid of the rest. So it might not just be a formal business that operates under a typical licensing arrangement. And there's a lot of people involved um, in that process, both in developed countries. And in fact, I mean, I've seen some stuff in the U.S. In our state of Wisconsin, where I operate, uh, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources puts an annual report out and they have regular documented studies of individuals who are collecting electronics harvesting out the good equipment, and then they dump the rest of the items they can't use in a ditch in their back of their property. So we have this issue in in, uh, both the U.S. and in developing countries. Now, Neil, you often as well have to come in contact with or deal with chemicals and other hazardous waste. You had mentioned plastic and things like that. What about other chemicals and things that you might come, that you not might, that you inevitably do come in contact with by way of, uh, I guess, demanufacturing the e-waste? Yeah, the things that we have to look out for are still the lead that's on the solder and the circuit board. So look at the lead um, risk, um, the batteries too. Um, and we would say that there's both the chronic health hazards from long-term exposure of mercury, lead, cadmium, lithium, as well as the acute exposure risk from a safety hazard. So the big risk that we're seeing right now is dealing with the rechargeable lithium-ion batteries. Uh, we've actually had cases in our facility where we're removing glued-in batteries that are on tablets or phones, and as we're removing them, they might um, be compromised, and then we've had fires take place. Um, so it's definitely directly impacting our technician who's handling the equipment, and thankfully we have um, fire protection and retardant uh, materials that are close by all these areas, and so we've been able to extinguish and contain uh, the fires but there have been cases at recycling operations that have burned to the ground because of uh, battery fires because they are so unsafe when handling because they can't be contained once they start a thermal runaway event. Indeed, and and we consu- ordinary consumers also have that risk a lot too. I can I know that I am careful with it because on almost every piece or of equipment that has that battery, there's a little warning there. Yes, definitely. And you can, people are going to start seeing this too, where you see a battery start bulging or maybe a, your, your tablet is, is separating a little bit. It's getting a little thicker. And that is the beginning of a, a compromise of a thermal runway event. And those are important to, um, can, you know, to deal with right away. Um, so there are some things you can look up online, how to deal with lithium ion battery fires. There's some good programs out there to send special containing devices that can uh, have a fire retardant material that can help protect it before you send it to a recycler. But we are seeing hundreds of damaged, bulging lithium-ion batteries each week at our facility that are coming in laptops, tablets, and phones, and it's quite a significant 
safety hazard for us. So, Neil, though, from where you sit, who are the biggest contributors to e-waste? Uh, I think we all are. Um, if anybody's got a um, is is buying new computer equipment, new consumer electronics, it's likely you're throwing away your old ones, or you are um, having a junk drawer somewhere full of a lot of old computer equipment that you need to um, find a home for somewhere. Um, we also see a lot coming from businesses, uh, schools, federal government, state government. Um, a lot of companies have a good planned IT refresh program because they want to have the newest and best computer equipment to help their organizations be productive. And they can have a good program which then works to refresh and replace those devices maybe every three to four years. If they can set up a good program to have someone collect and refurbish and resell them, it's great. You can have those devices have another life out there um, and extend the life of those devices, reduce the need for others to buy new equipment. But if people are sitting on devices in warehouses, they don't make use of them, uh, it's a wasted opportunity. And you have a lot of items that could have been used uh, that then become obsolete, un unusable, and then are likely to lose value and need to get recycled or are handled in the informal economy because they don't have any value. So everybody, anybody who buys computers is generating this material. The ones, uh, um, as they're replacing them, it's, uh, that, that's where we're generating all the e-waste. Indeed. We're going to go ahead and go to break, and we will be right back on the other side with some more of Neil to make us smarter. Thank you. want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in most Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more, and we're told with the best Christmas trees in Texas. Check them out at NHG.com. And their other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body, no mercury. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on waste and waste management, and we're focusing in on electronic waste and hazardous waste, the environmental and health consequences. And we are back with Neil Peters Michaud, CEO and co-founder of Cascade Asset Management, and he really is making us smarter. Thank you again, Neil, for, for joining us. Neil, I want to uh, jump in at, at, at this point, and you have said, and you mentioned it earlier right before we went to the break, that our failure to adequately dispose of e-waste is a missed opportunity. Why do you say that? 
Yeah, as um, mentioned, there's a lot of um, equipment out there that's perfectly good shape and it's, uh, you know, can continue to extend its life. And there's this idea and concept that is called the circular economy of how do we keep materials that are in use, in use as long as possible by either refreshing, repairing them, or um, harvesting parts that can be reused before we even get to recycling. Um, and so there is a strong opportunity and an interest from organizations to look at maximizing the value of their devices and extend them over the life cycle by finding better uses for them. A lot of what we do in our business is trying to do matchmaking, you know, find all this uh, discarded electronics that we're getting from businesses and institutions and find a home for them somewhere. And uh, as people probably know there's a big issue with the digital divide and digital equity in the U.S. and around the world. And there's a lot of people that can't afford the newest and greatest um, um, IT equipment or can't get uh, access to um, broadband. And uh, those are people that we can really be able to uh, refresh and get good quality equipment to uh, and help bridge that digital divide to get people access to technology to help them advance in society and not be left behind. Indeed. And it's a, a, an easy way to do it, quite frankly. And it helps the system. It helps, like you said, create that circular economy. Neil, I want to talk about, though, the economics of e-waste, because I heard you mention earlier, and we didn't go into it at the time, that there's some very valuable uh, materials and minerals in, in a lot of this e-waste. Talk to us about that and, and the kind of the valuation of some of these. I recall, too, uh, I think maybe on our first season of our show, and someone was talking to us about e-waste, and they were mentioning that there are some rare or near-rare minerals that there's not a lot left of, and, and, and that that perhaps uh, can be impacted by how we recycle this e-waste. Yeah, it's um, a good point. There's uh, rare earth metals like neodymium, which is uh, present in the magnets that are in hard drives, which are um, something that people are still trying to figure out how to capture in a, in a way that is um, not only technologically feasible, but commercially feasible. It used to be the case when computers were made that they had larger concentrations of those very valuable metals like gold that was put on circuit boards that created the connectors, processors that had a lot more gold than they do now. Uh, and so a lot of people could make a living and cover those high labor costs that we were talking about to, to dismantle a device. They could make enough money to cover those costs by selling the high-valued gold and platinum, palladium, and silver contents of computers to cover those costs. Manufacturers realize that that also costs them a lot of money uh, when they're manufacturing new products to put those precious metals in devices. So they've looked at ways on how they can minimize that and still have um, an effective device. And so as they've reduced their costs by using less precious metals, there's less value that can be harvested out of computers. So it's very difficult, if not impossible, if you take a whole mix of different types of electronics to be able to cover the cost of proper recycling from the metal content that are in devices. It'll help, but it doesn't fully cover it. So you'll see a lot of companies will charge a fee for the, the low-value devices that don't have much um, very uh, valuable metal Such or who as... have hazardous components to be recycled and then use some of the valuable commodities uh, to um, help offset those costs. So give us some examples so, of those that they'll charge a fee for because they're low-value. Yeah, um, anything that's like the old CRT monitors, um, you, everybody's charging for that because there is definitely a cost to properly recycle those devices. 
Um, large TVs that are not going to have much circuit boards compared to plastic and glass, which have sometimes a cost to get rid of or have no value, um, those are going to be examples. TVs, monitors, um, and then what we say is, you know, high plastic content materials, less than uh, items that have, uh, you know, metal cases, cable boxes still have value, <laughs> um, computers have value. Oh, okay, good. I want to, be, before we, you know, time flies, I want to talk about, though, what's going on with shipping e-waste to other countries, undeveloped countries. Yeah, so there used to be a lot of e-waste that was making its way to Asia. Um, a lot was going to China. Uh, and this was the case 20 years ago. And in our business, I would get multiple, maybe dozens of emails a day of Chinese-owned brokers which wanted to buy our, unmixed, our mixed e-waste and pay us a few pennies a pound for it. But it was more than we would get if we actually had to process it domestically. Why, why the did they want that? Yeah. Why did they want that and find well, that valuable? Yeah. I mean, part of it is there was the, the cheap labor opportunity to separate out the materials by hand to recover the valuable materials and not having any uh, environmental laws on the books that would require them to properly process the hazardous materials. And then the other economics part is that the trade imbalance was so significant that the U.S. was bringing in so many shipping containers of products we're buying out of China that they needed to get those containers back. And so it would cost almost just like $250 to send a shipping container of e-waste into China uh, 10, 15 years ago because they just needed the containers back and they were happy to get something inside of them. Now, that has changed. Uh, about uh, five years ago, China instituted what's called its national sword policy because they were seeing so much contaminated plastic and uh, materials being shipped into the country that they restricted uh, those devices or those materials from coming in unless they were had less than 1% contamination. So you couldn't be shipping plastics that had debris in them. So that's why all the plastic bags that used to go over to China, that, that's not an option anymore. And the same hit e-waste, too. Then other Asian countries uh, opened up their doors, uh, and uh, you'd see a lot of equipment being shipped into Malaysia, Singapore, and other countries. Um, and they were starting to have the same issue. But these countries are realizing they don't want to put up with dealing with the world's waste. And so they've come together through an international treaty program called the Basel Convention uh, that manages the international and transboundary movement of hazardous waste to try and crack down on some of these uh, shipments. And so they're not as pervasive as they used to be uh, because countries are saying they don't want to deal with these toxics that are shipped along for the ride, along with the good equipment that comes to them. So we have all these countries that used to be our dumping ground for our e-waste, mm -hmm. and they are beginning to pull back. How is that affecting our disposition or recycling of e-waste? Yeah, I mean, in some ways for, for consumers, it's um, done two things. It has increased some of the cost because there used to be a lot of these free um, programs that was really just collecting and shipping products around the world because it was cheaper. Um, they've gone out of business because they can't do that anymore. But it's also helped spur a really uh, viable and, and vibrant domestic recycling industry where there's a lot of new businesses that are starting up uh, that are trying to look for responsible domestic recycling options. And a lot of these are also helped and facilitated and supported by these state um, recycling programs. So you mentioned in the beginning that there's the state producer responsibility programs where manufacturers are helping to cover some of the costs of recycling electronics that they're selling into these states. And so that helps fund some of the programs too. So I think the intent of, of other developing countries saying, 
they don't want our waste is it's making us be more responsible for handling our waste domestically. And it's also spurring an economy within the U.S., creating more jobs that can properly process the equipment here. And uh, what we're saying, internalizing the cost that we used to externalize those costs uh, to other countries who didn't have the pollution controls in place, who we impact and, and, and harm their environment and the people there, you know, we can actually pay for proper recycling done domestically. Indeed. Thank you for that, that explanation. So I want to ask about moving back. Um, in, as I am learning from experts like you, as we undertake uh, different environmental issues every month here on Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, I, I'm learning that um, probably the most effective way is to begin with the end in mind. <laughs> in many things. So as an expert in this e-waste and hazardous waste industry, what is being done or talked about or even maybe looking at policy with working back to the original manufacture of some of these things? Because that seems to be, if you really want to knock it out, that's where you go if you really want to knock it out quickly. But I know that's not going to happen quickly. But talk to us about where, where we are with that. Yeah, there's a lot of good initiatives around what's called design for the environment or design for recycling, uh, which is being incorporated in the design decisions from many manufacturers and how they develop um, electronic products. There's actually a good initiative that's been created, which is um, a consortium of both uh, the government, environmentalists, and manufacturers called EPEAT, or the Electronic Product Environmental Assessment Tool, which is kind of like the energy star ratings that you see on appliances. Mm -hmm. But EPEAT is applied to um, consumer electronics, computers, TVs, to look at the total environmental impact of the devices as they're being produced and put in use and then recycled. And then it rates these different products on an environmental scale. So the gold EPEAT uh, products are the most environmentally friendly over their entire life cycle. Those are great things that, you know, if consumers want to look for what to buy that has the lowest environmental impact and the best environmental performance and likely is the easiest to recycle at the end of its life, look for a gold EPEAT product. And then use the equipment properly. Get the most uh, life out of it. Um, you know, don't just be in this planned obsolescence type of environment where we're buying and replacing and disposing of things in a linear fashion. See how we can extend the life of products as much as we can and just avoid the need to buy new equipment if we really don't need it. Indeed, and we need some more incentives for that for us consumers, but I think also more incentives. The EP program is amazing, but it needs to somehow work back to incentivize the original uh, producers to put less electronic waste into those devices. Neil, thank you so much. We are at the end of our program, but you really have made us smarter. I see why you are in the Electronics Reuse Hall of Fame. Thank you. We really appreciate it. We have been today with Neil Peters Michaud, CEO and co-founder of Cascade Asset Management, and he really has made us smarter about uh, electronic waste, what it is, what it's doing, and, and what the future bodes. Thank you so much, Neil. We really appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and even in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. 
Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler, and thank you so much for listening today and join us again next week for more Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio and listen to any of our past shows on podcast wherever you get your podcast. Thank you.